Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend. We've known each other. I think John will figure it out at some point during the course of our conversation, but it's a long time. John Partella. And John is the CEO at Screen Vision Media. He is one of the stalwarts and true visionaries of our industry and is just a jewel of a guy. So John, really thrilled to reunite with you and have you on Great Minds. Thank you, Matt. I'm really delighted to be here. Much appreciated. Great. So, John, I, I want to go back and I want to start with your tenure at back then was a very progressive shop that you created within the YNR family. And with no pun intended, it was buzzy then and people still talk about it today. And I'm talking about what you did at a very young age as the founder and CEO of Brand Buzz. So I'd love to start going back to Brand Buzz. Sure. Well, thanks, Matt. Um, you know, my career at YNR is very fortunate to get my first job out of college, you know, at Young Arubicam YNR uh, back in the late 80s. And I spent in total, you know, about 17 years there in that terrific place. And somewhere uh, in the late 90s, uh, as that little thing called digital was coming out, uh, there was a feeling that the YNR model was terrific uh, for, for a couple of ways. It was terrific if you were an advertiser that knew you wanted to predominantly work in, in one medium, whether that be television or design or what have you. There was a portfolio of companies that you could uh, reach into. It, there was Landor if you wanted to have a brand or package design initiative. Young Rubicam Advertising did the best, you know, you know, in, in my biased opinion, best TV advertising and print advertising, you know, in the country and so on. Um, and it also worked in another way. It worked really well for large, large companies and brands uh, like Ford Motor Company, that was a big client uh, of YNRs or Accenture that were global in nature and could avail themselves of the entire global network and also needed uh, not one channel or medium. They needed to play across several. So they could come into Young Rubicam with very large budgets and very large initiatives and goals, and they could get what they called the whole egg or a comprehensive uh, team that cut across many of the different uh, assets and uh, portfolios and, and um, brands that existed within the Young and Rubicam group. Where it didn't work uh, so, so well some of the time was if you were kind of a small to mid-sized advertiser and you weren't even sure which medium you wanted to anchor your dollars in at that point, at a starting point, and you were also increasingly interested in digital, and so that was a hard thing for an agency at that point. YNR was no exception to be able to respond to. And so, you know, it wasn't just myself, but a, but a group of us with the full support of the board of the company uh, elected to start kind of a SWAT team or a SWAT agency inside sort of a brand within a company that could provide sort of brand agnostic thinking that often started with digital first. And so that was 99 into 2000. And a client could come in and say, look, I don't have a massive budget, so I can't have a whole comprehensive Young and Rubicamp group uh, solution, but I'd like to come in with my midsize budget. I'd like digital to be right there early in the conversation, maybe even the tip of the spear. And we had we started this group called Brand Buzz, which was essentially giving brands that kind of like talk about value or velocity that often had digital at the center of the conversation. So talk about what digital meant then, because you were five, six years ahead of Facebook. You were seven, eight years ahead of YouTube, similar ahead of the iPhone, and almost none of the technologically driven subjects 
that we'll talk about at Advertising Week uh, this year and that we're all talking about all year long. None of them existed in any form, let alone lesser form. Yeah, <clears throat> that's exactly right. We, um, we were trying to you know, position this notion of getting your brand talked about uh, or get brand buzz, get buzz for your brand or your business. And a lot of that happened in the online uh, world at that point that you could capture and you could see people uh, going onto websites of brands. Uh, it, it obviously started a lot at that point, the Blair Witch had come out as a movie and that was very timely. And you saw a lot of word of mouth, particularly online, generating the traction of that film uh, that didn't occur through traditional advertising. And so we were able to learn from that and go into these different uh, digital realms where people, you know, at that point were spending time. And, you know, there were a few, you know, big uh, destination centers at that point that, you know, Yahoo and otherwise, where people were beginning to anchor their conversations, their opinions. Uh, and we were trying to go in there and talk to them. We were creating brand conversation or brand dialogue. We were driving them to other channels to learn more. We were driving them to brand websites. Um, we had communications that was more mass awareness that led them into a digital pop-up, you know, community or a pop-up hub. You know, all this now sounds fairly rudimentary, but we were looking to, to drive people into a digital village where conversations could occur. And that was, that was really, again, at the heart of some of the communication and the planning. Yeah, but back then it wasn't rudimentary at all. And you were sort of, you know, leading in the influencer space before anybody knew what influencers were. I will tell you a quick little story and not make it long, but this is going to blow your socks off. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell had just come out with his first book. Uh, and uh, I'm blanking on the name of it at, at this it point. The, but the, the Tipping Point? The Tipping Point. That's it. So that was, if you check my, you know, if you check the, the, uh, the copyrights, I believe that came out in 2000. And we'd been out about six months and I read the book like lots of people did. And I thought, oh my God, this is exactly what I'm sort of talking about. And, and I sent a bunch to, you know, advertisers and clients and I sent it to a bunch of folks in YNR. And somebody said to me, you know, it'd be great if we could get this guy, Mr. Gladwell to come in and speak. And, and, uh, and I thought, well, that, that'll probably be hard, but who knows? And then I, 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 I happened to look at something or read something and it said, Malcolm Gladwell will be signing books at Pershing Square coffee shop on a Saturday morning or something back on a, whatever, a fall day. And I showed up and there were about nine people there. So I said, you know, Mr. Gladwell, you know, I'm John Portilla. I read your book. We've started this sort of agency within an agency, trying to lean more into digital communication and conversations. Your book talks about it. Would you be willing to come into our agency and have a conversation about it? And he said, absolutely. Here's my card. And within about two weeks, he showed up uh, we had about 80 people that showed up that we read the book and some people were, I think being polite, they hadn't yet heard of him, who he was. Um, and we had a, he was an incredibly warm, lovely, and I will say shy person at that point, he struck me as a relatively shy person. And it was a great conversation. Well, cut to maybe six, seven months later, you know, Malcolm Gladwell was, was commanding, you know, rooms of corporate retreats and, uh, you know, I don't know what his honorarium is, but I'm sure it's in the six figures, you know, quickly thereafter. So we got him really, we, we didn't pay him anything. We, we bought him breakfast and we, we bought, I think committed to buying a certain amount of his books at the time. And just, he was just a lovely person. So it was still relatively novel at that point. That story makes me still chuckle. But it's a great story about you, John, as much as anything else, because as we start to build sort of that John Partilla narrative, you're a guy who has been first it was almost a, a look into the future about what, you know, what would be ahead for you. So, okay. So 
great stuff. And then where we met was when you took over as the president of the global media group at Time Warner, which right. again was very progressive. Uh, so let's talk about that. I have vivid memories of our early meetings. We started Advertising Week right around the same time when you took the helm there at Time Warner. I think that's where we met. We did. And one of your first speakers that you gave us the slot was with myself and Mark Darcy, a little known creative at that point. Yeah. Right? Just like Malcolm Gladwell, right? Who's now not little known. Who knew? Yeah. yeah. Well, I knew. That's the whole thing, right? You sure and, did. And, and, and so, um, you know, that's that's such a such a, a memorable and, and remarkable and wonderful chapter in, in my fortunate career so far as well. Um, so, you know, the genesis of that was I certainly did not invent the group, and I want to always make sure that I'm clear about that. But the group had existed as a, you know, a cross-selling media platform, which many of the media companies uh, had to help those brands and advertisers that want to do deals, similar to what I talked about with Young and Rubicam, across the portfolio. So they weren't interested, perhaps, that particular client in just buying Turner Sports with the remarkable David Levy and Linda Yaccarino at the time, who I was so lucky to work with, or AOL with great folks over there like Janet Bayless and Mike Kelly and all those, those terrific folks and Dave Morgan at the time, or they weren't just interested in CNN with Greg Dalba. They were interested in really looking at the house or the suite of assets. Well, that, that was invented before I got there. And I was excited to have that career opportunity after 17 years. You know, I'd walked in, as I mentioned, young Rubicam was my first job. And, um, but most people would tap me on the shoulder after years and say, you know, you don't have to stay here forever. You know, you, you don't you don't have to stay at the first job forever. But I hadn't had anything that really had compelled me. And then the the call from from Jeff Bucus and Dick Parsons at the time, come share what you might do with this kind of group, was really exciting and a, and a great change at a, at a great time. But my view of it was to change it slightly, which was to put creative thinking at the center of it. So if you will, put a bit of an agency mindset to work alongside in a complementary fashion with the sellers. And so the idea being, uh, and we had a little phrase for this at the time that again, I give Mark Darcy full credit for, the idea is we would evolve our group to be idea-driven, asset-supported. And so the idea is we would go to these large advertisers that might be exploring um, a media plan across the house of Time Warner. And the important thing was to start with, with an idea. Um, and so with Johnson & Johnson, we talked about this notion of having a baby changes everything in your life. You just cross the Rubicon to a different place. And how do you have the assets support that idea? And, and we did ideas like that, brand after brand after brand. We did one for Home Depot around, you know, the idea that, you know, you, you know we're going to help anyone become the best do-it-yourselfer, and then Home Depot supports that. And then we'd use the assets of Time Warner behind that. And so we hired a flurry of people that were a little bit unfamiliar for a sales-driven organization at the time. Uh, obviously, Time Warner had some of the most remarkable creative talents in the studios and all the different... Uh, divisions, but they didn't have a lot of creatives in, in a sales organization at the time. So we brought over my partner and friend, Mark Darcy, to be the chief creative officer of a sales group of a media platform. That was very novel at the time. Uh, that has now changed as you see most of the large media companies and platforms have creative groups and creative officers. And I do have, you know, I, I look around, I'm struck by, you know, David Droga has moved into Accenture as a creative force and you've got, um, you know, uh, you know, folks inside Apple that have, Nick Waugh has moved into Apple from the agency space as a leading creative icon. And many of these companies and platforms, you know, in a marketing or sales realm have really plussed up their internal creative agency resources. And the thinking at the time, and I would still remain true to this, is it wasn't in any way to compete with the agencies that the brands uh, had within their own, you know, 
portfolio, it was really to provide on-ramps for conversation and creative gestation into a media conglomerate or a media platform. It was a great idea at the time. Uh, Mark Darcy was the most amazing talent to bring in. I was fortunate to have another five-ish years with him before he then went on to Facebook and I went on to my next chapter. Uh, but it, it was something we're still very proud of. And, you know, a lot of these efforts, John, that are br brought in or whether it's from the outside or the inside to create something across, they're often met with a lot of opposition, a lot of problems. And I think there are more failures than successes. You were very successful. You got everybody to work together. What was it that you and Mark and your team did? And do you have any thoughts on, you know, how that landscape has evolved? And we've seen failure after failure, these big mergers and seeking economies and, and they unravel, they unravel. You know, we saw the telcos run into the content business and then very quickly run away from the yeah. content business, but you were successful. What was it that you and Mark and your team did that worked? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that occurred to me at the time that still resonate. And, and, and the first is, the first one I'm gonna say is, that, is a, a word you don't probably hear a ton is humility. And you know, a lot of people come into organizations or mergers and they think they've got the answer. And I think that that's, you know, that's arrogant. I think that you wanna come into a role and respect the shoulders of those that have built what has been there to date, um, recognize that there are strengths and assets that should be appreciated and, and maybe more fully mined or leveraged. Um, and I think when you approach things with air of humility, you first of all, you recognize what can be built upon, but you also get people to open up to you more because you're not claiming to have all the answers. Uh, the second thing I'll say is uh, you want to focus on the distinct value that whether this uh, merger is bringing what is the distinct value? What's the thesis of this thing coming together or the distinct value we try to bring to the Time Warner company from where we sat, we used to say with a little wheel that, that could move a big ship. What was our distinct value? And our distinct value we felt was not to outsell the sellers inside Time Warner or to outcreate the agencies that were on the client's roster. It was to create a spark of an idea that an agency could respond and build upon that then the divisions inside Time Warner with the sellers could take that spark of an idea, build it further, and then help close that deal economically. We, uh, I did something very interesting in the beginning. I gave up pricing power. When I took the job, uh, I asked, what was the single complaint you had about my predecessor or, or the people that had maybe run that group before I got there? And they all said, uh, people treat, our, treat um, a cross-selling platform group like a discount portal. And if I want to, um, you know, David Levy said, and Lindy Acarino had said, if I want to discount my stuff. And I decided to reach that point with an advertiser. I could do that by myself. Thank you very much. I don't need your help. And, you know, that really, you know, stuck with me. And so the thing was, okay, well, I'm not going to create a better deal from the center. So I claimed no pricing power. I, any deal we brought in had to be approved in terms of pricing and negotiation by each of the divisions that participated. What we tried to create was a marketing or creative conversation at the center that others could build upon. So that's distinct value. And then the third thing I think, and you hear this word a great deal, I heard Linda speak on your show not so long ago, Matt, she was so terrific, Linda Yaccarino, is the word you hear a lot, which is outcomes. So you've got to start with humility. You've got to go to what's your distinct value and what's the thesis of what you're trying to create. And then what's the outcome in every situation you're hoping to drive and keep that center of the plate because that keeps everyone, so to speak, honest and focused through a conversation when things get political or there's infighting over budgets. 
what's the outcome we've agreed to for the advertiser or what's the outcome for the division or what's the outcome we're helping for on the merger that you know, we're theoretically discussing. So those are the three things that were my guiding principles. Fantastic stuff. And you mentioned a name. Um, and if guys like you and me don't talk about people like this, they're destined to be largely lost in history. And I first met him when he was president of the Dime Savings Bank way back when. Yes, Dick Parsons. Talk about Dick, because he was a very special guy. Dick was and, and is an incredibly special guy. Yeah, still and, very much with us, yes, right? Yes, correct, 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 yes. yeah. He is extraordinary. And and Dick and Jeff and Don Logan, they were all extraordinary leaders and they were all very humble and affable with each other, but they were all brilliant. And they all really knew. They were all incredibly emotionally intelligent. Dick was just so remarkable in his emotional intelligence and ability to get people to work together. And he obviously was a great leader that recognized some of the uh, frustrations of the, at that point, the time and the AOL merger. And he came in after the fact to try and bring it together. He was a big champion of the group that I wound up, you know, being able to inherit, take over. And some, every once in a while, he would pop up to my office and I really, you know, yeah, sure. Did I have the title of president of the global media group? I sure did. Were there a lot of presidents inside the Time Warner empire? There sure were. Were there incredible power brokers? You know, absolutely. You know, Dick had a lot of other offices he could have stopped in on besides mine on a, on a Thursday at a two o'clock. Um, but what he liked to talk about was how's it going? How's the marketplace responding? What should I look at in terms of long road acquisitions? Will you meet with our MA folks? Um, how are the divisions doing? Which ones are really supportive? Which ones are frustrated? How can I help you with that? And then he, he left me with an axiom that, you know, we've heard before from others, but it's the first time I'd heard it was from Dick. He said, you know, JP, you know, just keep it going. Uh, anybody can always go faster alone, but you go further together. And apparently that's an African proverb, which, which I learned much later. And, and there's so much wisdom in that, which is when you're getting patient and you want to just get a deal done or move quickly, you can, you can move fast, but you won't go as far in the deal. If you don't put in the patience and the collaboration, you won't have as big of an idea or as big of a sale. And he just was a remarkable leader. And while he was leading us, he was also fending off you know, some hostile takeover attempt, attempts inside the Time Warner Empire with, with Mr. Icon at the time, things that are very public. And he just remained affable and, um, you know, just was a spirit of, of calmness and leadership that, you know, many of us continue to look up to. Yeah, an absolute jewel of a guy. I met him when we were bidding for the Goodwill Games, which you'll remember. And we had a very big night when in front of the selection committee at Ellis Island. Back then, the superintendent of the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island was a lovely woman named Ann Belkoff, who was a very good friend. And she invited us to do our sort of our throw our, you know, biggest punch, best foot forward and do it in the Great Hall at Ellis Island, which is a very unique and dramatic setting. And I had Governor Florio. Remember Jim Florio from of New Jersey? I yeah. And I don't remember why Cuomo, the first Governor Cuomo, Mario Cuomo, was very supportive of us, but he couldn't come that night. And I needed someone else. And I asked Dick, would you be our sort of big guy for the New York side of the river? And he did and was absolutely wonderful. He, he is. He is. Um, I've gotten to now and again have a bite with him or a cup of coffee. I haven't in recent years. And he remembers people. He's incredibly gracious and caring. And he's when you work with these legends as they are real, true legends, it makes you wake up every day and want to be a better, a better version of yourself. 
Great. Yeah, I'm glad we got to talk about Dick. So you have a great run there, and then you move on to a similarly titled but very different gig at Clear Channel. Where we cross paths again. Yeah. yeah. And again, I, you know, this is, you know, maybe moving into the John Parchilla career arc, which might be boring to some people. But for me, I reached a, I'd been there five years. And someone had said to me, you know, JP, I think, you know, you can stay here forever, but you can also declare victory. And I, you know, I maybe stayed at places too long. And I, and I, and I did some soul searching. And one of the things that I was really interested in, in doing at some point in my career, Matt, was, was being an operator, you know, being a CEO, running something, right, all the way, which I hadn't done yet. I'd run a small agency within an agency. I'd been a managing partner of a, of a large respected agency, Young and Rubicam. I'd run a, a, you know, a large sort of inside sales organization across the greatest media company at the time, in my opinion. Um, but I talked to Jeff Bucus about this and he said, listen, to do that, you know, it's hard to take someone like you as, as, as much as I like working with you and JP and respect you, et cetera, et cetera. I, it's probably not likely I'm going to put you in charge to run, you know, new line, should there be an opening or, you know, Turner, we've got a couple of good folks lined up there and these are big platforms. So you kind of have to go through the old adage and you might have to find smaller ponds that lead you to bigger jobs that step you up into those operating roles. And one day I got a call and it was the, the Mark Mays of the Mays family with Clear Channel. And he said, listen, we're a smaller version of Time Warner, but we've got kind of what we think is maybe a, a, a larger role. You have a P&L, you join the operating team. We're trying to get more digital. We're trying to launch this platform called iHeart and make it into something a little more substantial. And we also could use some of what you brought to Time Warner, which is some of that horizontal or corporate selling across radio and outdoor and digital. And I, you know, I really liked my great conversations. And it was one of those really difficult moments in life where I went and talked to Jeff Bucus, who was my boss at that time. And he said, listen, give it a try. It makes sense on paper. And if you don't love it, you know, we'll be here for you. And uh, they were also owned by private equity, which opened up some different doorways for me later on in my career, which we can touch on. And that's, that's where I, I wound up going to my next adventure. And you had a terrific run there. Loved it. Radio has really evolved. Could you imagine then what was ahead for radio? Because it's been one of the genres of media that's sort of, I don't want to say it's been an upset, but when you look alongside the magazine industry, the newspaper industry, which have really suffered uh, and yeah. have yet to figure it out and may never. I mean, newspaper, some hope with subscription versus advertising. Magazines, tough business now. Radio, on the other hand, complete reinvention. Yeah, I think it's been interesting in that I seem to have had a little bit of a knack, and this is all accidental, no planning where I've gone to things that people might consider more traditional or legacy and spent time and then recognized there was something in there that could be um, plussed up in a way. And so advertising, I stayed a long, long time, but was able to lean into the digital realm with them. I didn't invent it, obviously, but uh, it excited me to help bring more digital uh, focus, right? To a maybe at that point, which were more conventional uh, brand platforms at Young Ruby Camp, Time Warner, great company. You know, a lot of our thinking digital was at the core of it, uh, but also how brands could work together more creatively uh, and more and assets could work together more inventively. And so that was interesting. And then Clear Channel continued that, that trend as they were just beginning to come out with this iHeart platform concept. But I, I listened to radio. I listened to radio in my car. Uh, you know, we didn't have streaming at that point to be talking about much, but there were a, a lot of things that were occurring that I thought, oh, this could be really interesting. And I think the the only humble contributions I made there were a little bit of a contribution of saying that iHeart was really a powerful idea with a lot of people. I was saying this and it should be made larger and larger and larger. And then 
obviously really industry greats like Richard Bressler and, and Bob Pittman took that to the next level with the team. But if you remember, we boldly took Clear Channel out on the map a little bit more when we went to the A&A with Bob Leodice and yourself. And we said, let's own a night and let's talk about a case study. And we got the Goo Goo Dolls to play. Yep. And, you know, we just, I think, helped in our own small way, uh, help bring Clear Channel a little, just a little more into the center of the conversation. But again, we just had a small part of that. Yeah, no, we, we, and we did some good stuff back then. So it, you continue forward. You have a cup of coffee uh, with Dentsu. Yeah, uh, and work with Tim and yeah, I love Tim Andre and uh, you know they continue to try to sort of figure out the outside Japan part yeah. of Dentsu. I think within Japan they've got that pretty well figured out. Uh, but that must have been interesting for you. Yeah, and that was a quicker story, and it was kind of a cup of coffee, and that was just one of these things that happened in a career. And I remember seeking your advice and other people as well. And at that point, you know, we had. There's been a thread, right, since Time Warner. You and I have always been involved in Advertising Week. We've done great things together, I know. By the way, I'm excited for the one coming up in two weeks again as you moved it in October. Um, you know, what happened is, as I, I got that nice that nice job at, at Clear Channel and we got some good things done with it, um, I wound up getting a call from some, some, some new friends and old friends or former friends at Dentsu Group. A lot of young Rubicam folks had moved over there. Tim Andre I hadn't met yet. He is just a terrific, incredible leader. And I was uh, asked to come in and be COO of the Americas, right, of their sort of corporate leadership group. So uh, that included at that time 360i and Dentsu America and Attic Design and Consulting, ATTIK, and, and various brands, right? And it was a terrific opportunity for me to come in and, and in a way, use muscles I'd never quite used before, Matt. It was a, it was a harder role for me because this was about... Uh, the word was at the time rationalizing a lot of acquisitions and making sure they worked together appropriately. And there were some redundancies and layoffs. And my job was less focused on RevGen or even clients. It was really focused on how do offices work together? How are things streamlined? What's the right organizational structure? And it was great to use different muscles. Uh, along the way, I'd gone uh, back in, in the um, executive MBA program and gotten my MBA from, from Columbia Business School. And so all that was sort of coming together. And then, then I didn't plan this, but I got suddenly after less than two years in, in the, uh, the role, I wound up getting two big job offers to be a CEO in the same month. And um, I'm trying to think about the way to do this. I guess I can just say it now. One was for Landor, brand design and consultancy, because uh, some of the players aren't there anymore. And it, and it, was, it was the terrific Martin Sorrell who said, you know, come on back. Um, and you could be CEO of Landor. And we got pretty far in the conversations. And, uh, and the other was a brand new kind of job, which was a, a smallish uh, marketing services agency group out of Minneapolis owned by a private equity company called Mountain Gate Capital called the Olson Group. And I, the comfortable thing, again, would have been to have gone back to the WPP portfolio. Uh, it was a terrific job and opportunity to be CEO of the Landor Group. But I thought, I think this other thing feels a little more filled with new opportunities and the private equity realm felt interesting to me. And so uh, the Daily PP folks were terrific and gracious um, and said, look, you've been with us a long time in your career. It's okay to keep trying new things. But the reason I was there at Dentsu for a cup of coffee to make the long story short is that I wound up getting two of these magnificent job offers in less than two years. And so when you get those opportunities to go from a COO to a CEO, you don't know if you're going to get two in a month or two every 10 years. And so I kind of had to make that choice and clearly reach up the ladder. Tim Andre was very gracious to, to let me move on. It wasn't in a you know competitive environment. 
And that began my next chapter at, at the Olson Group, backed by private equity. And you touched on it um, a couple times, but talk about that interest in private equity. And that's been a big part of your career the last decade or so. And you've worked for and with some of the best. Yes. So I've been now almost the last 10 years as what they call an operator or a CEO of private equity backed quote platforms or companies. And I, I do love it. I mean, it is again that to harken back to Jeff Bucus, it is, it is all of it is a little more about um, being a bigger fish in these smaller ponds, relatively speaking, these are usually a couple hundred million dollar size platforms that then build and acquire and grow. And they're usually turnaround or growth situations. But what I love about it is it goes back a little bit to what I first loved about the agency business in the late eighties and nineties is they weren't owned by conglomerates, right? They move faster. They're more agile. They're more partnership based. They're what agencies used to be, right? Where you um, they were owned by themselves, right, as a group with maybe an investment house or what law firms used to be or accountancies used to be, where it's more of a partnership model where people rally around. Usually people have, you know, they buy in and have some equity in the organization. Uh, people's, you know, fingerprints are much more all over the, uh, the decisions that are made, even at a manager level, all the way up to the CEO level. And you really can impact these kinds of organizations without a lot of bureaucracy, which sometimes larger companies can have. And so for me, I've really loved being able to come in and again, starting with humility, seeing what's terrific about, for instance, the Olson Group. And there were just such terrific leaders there, you know, a Margaret Murphy, a Dennis Ryan, people have, you know, a Brian Speck, people have been around, done great things. But what was my distinct value? Again, what was I going to bring into this place? How was I going to grow it, fix it, change it, uh, and then ultimately sell it and exit it to a great partner, which we did. We wound up selling Olson after a couple of years to a consultancy group. And a lot, a lot, a lot of agencies went into consultancy groups at the time. That was sold in 2014. In the last half dozen years, consultancy groups have moved and bought many more of these agency businesses and marketing services. Again, John, early to the game. So, and you had a sort of a wacky commute for a few years, weren't you going back and forth? So everything about the Olson job was perfect because it was like, okay, it's private equity. It's going to be new. It's great you know, opportunity to, to, to do something new here and fresh and add some value. I loved the chairman at the time who was named John Olson. Uh, he was the founder uh, and the private equity group. The only little wrinkle was it was based in Minneapolis. And I and, you know, my wife and family are here in New York City and my kids were still of high school age or younger. And that was yet another hard decision. None of these decisions, by the way, are easy. But the private equity group was terrific and they wound up giving me, uh, you know, the means to have an apartment inside a hotel. So I was a little bit like, uh, what is that woman who lives in the Plaza, Plaza Eloise? Right, right. Yeah, it was sort of like JP at the Hotel Ivy in Minneapolis. So during the week, so I would fly out Sunday nights or Monday morning and it was a little sad to leave the family and I would come back on Thursday nights, but I would be out there. And then I would say to Jackie, my assistant, book me every night for a client dinner or with someone in the company. I, you know, I don't want to be you know, bored or lonely. And I would just crank in a very binary fashion, you know, Monday morning to, to Thursday night, and then I'd fly back Thursday night or Friday morning, and then I would, would be with the family Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. So it wasn't terrible, uh, but there was many a Sunday night or Monday morning, and there was a 6.05 a.m. out of LaGuardia. I would be at my desk in Minneapolis at 8.15 because the time difference, and it made for, it made for long, hard weeks. And in Minneapolis, by the way, I don't know if you know, this could be a little bit chilly in the winter. Yeah, <laughs> I'm aware. I'm yeah. aware. People don't, you don't see anybody outside. You have to be a hardy. So I, I now, like, I now can embrace even more cold weather than I used to. I loved Minneapolis, though. But I, I think it's a great city. A lot of those Midwest cities I find are a little bit mundane. 
But oh, Mini- Minneapolis, I think, is and St. Paul is a great yeah. is a great great oh my place. God. The music scene, the restaurant scene, the museums, and of course, I was fortunate to make many new wonderful friends. And you know, it was yet another chapter. If if you look at these things and you say make the most of it, it just was hard. It was hard on the kids, and I'll always you know I'll always have some concern about that and reflection. But you do the best you can as a provider, and uh, and it all worked out. So it was a great opportunity. It sure did. So. The we turn the next page uh, to where we are now and have been for a while, but through some different iterations, and that's yeah. running Screen Vision. Yeah, so just bring us up to date. So I've been here now six years, and uh, Shamrock Capital had called me up uh, in the f- summer of fifteen, and I'd been this time working for almost a year for the consultancy company ICF International. They're called great people who had bought Olson. And uh, I liked what I was doing very, very much, but the chance to maybe have another turnaround situation was exciting. Um, the chance to kind of come back a little more to the media part of the world, because I've now been on the agency side a bit. So my career has also been toggling between agency chair and media chair by, at this point. And the chance to come back and now spend another six years on the media side was, was exciting. Um, and, you know, you know, we all parted very amicably. I, I kind of Dove headfirst into this opportunity. And again, a great team here, leadership team that I was able to inherit along with bringing some other players on board. We wound up t- you know, taking the company and, and really um, taking the revenue up about 50% in the first two and a half years and the profit or the EBITDA. Uh, we essentially more than doubled it without getting to specific figures. And at that point, Shamrock thought, well, this is a good time for us to maybe transact and sell. That's what private equity firms do. And we've, we wound up um, getting a great, uh, a great partner and a great buyer, another private equity sponsor in Abry Partners, A-B-R-Y out of Boston, pretty big firm, terrific folks. And they have now owned uh, Screen Vision for three years. Uh, and the first 18 months was uh, smoother sailing, good growth, nice development, nice things we were doing in the industry creatively to bring you know, more cinema ads in front of the movies. And we diversified into more at home a little bit and different screens. And then the pandemic obviously hit in March of 20. And so this past 18 months has really been another test uh, and trial uh, in my career. So let's talk about that a little bit because there's been a tremendous amount of turbulence in that space. And uh, it's several iterations later as a company but the decisions that Warner Media made, in particular, uh, to run their first-run movies simultaneously in theater and HBO Max, uh, has been really uh, earth-shattering in many respects to a lot of the norms, and has had a tremendous impact on a lot of businesses, yours included. Talk about what that's been like being the captain of a ship uh, that has been particularly hard hit the last 18 months. Yeah, no, it's been, it has been uh, the hardest professional challenge of my career. And I've had a few. Uh, It's hard to go uh, into a crisis that's as sudden, that's as deep in terms of the pain of of a revenue moving from, you know, several hundred million dollars to almost zero uh, and as long, right? So sudden, deep and long has been the pain. Now we're beginning to come out of it. Uh, We made the hard calls very quickly, which you have to do about furloughs and layoffs and salary reductions. And uh, I continue to be as I should be on a, on a much reduced compensation package because these things, you know, take time to recover. But we're we've got our, our employee base back to where they should be for the most part. 
um, we're also a derivative, right, of the studio and theatrical business, meaning we don't control our fate. And so we're a little bit at the whims and the vagaries of decisions that are made. And, you know, as, as we saw early in the pandemic, everyone locked down. Uh, Hollywood had a lot of products sitting on the shelf. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't hold anything against any of the studios that have had to make these hard decisions around what to do with product. There were no easy or good calls to make. Uh, and it was a good time to experiment. I think the Warner decision uh, probably was on balance the right decision executed poorly. It's my humble opinion. Again, I think that they could have dialogued much more with the Hollywood and creative community, much more with the theater and exhibition community and made the same decision, but maybe 60 days later and gotten a lot more input. And that again, you go faster alone, but you go further together. And I think, you know, they could have gone further in terms of goodwill and maybe even better ideas if they had brought more people into the conversation into the boat. Um, for us, I, you know, our company, you know, we focus on putting great, you know, brand and, and uh, local advertising in front of that pre-show where people are engaged and excited right for the trailer start. We've got stuff in the lobby um, and we weren't able to do much of that. So we pivoted to having a drive-in business. We pivoted doing some things digitally and we pivoted to doing uh, creating partnerships and alliances with other kinds of screens, uh, whether in doctor's offices or e-card charging stations like Volta or top golf. So we, so we pivot our own way, but getting back quickly to the heart of your question, um, I think that at the end of the day, uh, where this is gonna shake out of a 90 day theatrical window exclusivity down to more like 45 days, where it looks like people are thinking that math works best, that's gonna be a fine outcome for our company and for the industry. I don't think the industry had needed to have 90 days for some time and maybe the pandemic for all its, its terrible tragedy and horror that we all have gosh, suffered and, and lost loved ones too. Um, maybe a silver lining of it is that it catalyzed a, a shorter window, uh, which is more appropriate for the current business model. And it's also helped turn streaming companies into also movie studio distribution platforms into the exhibition business. So the Apples, the Netflixes, the Amazons, they're increasingly gonna be not just making movies just for their own platforms, but they're gonna make a handful a year that I believe will also premiere premiere in the theatrical exclusive window for 45 days before they go downstream because they don't have to wait 90 to 100 days anymore. So there's going to be some pluses out of this. And business. you're on the front lines of conversations with those in the theater exhibition business. Talk about what's going on in terms of the experience. I mean, there's still no replacement to me for that. I won't watch No Time to Die at home in my living room. We're going to the theater but you're under a lot of pressure and your partners in the exhibition business to increase the value and impact and resonance of the experience. That's right. You have to compel people to get off that couch because you know, it is easier to just stay at home and hit the buttons, right? Um, but I, always, I often say that uh, movie going is very different than movie watching. And movie watching might as well have distracted next to those words because when you watch something at home, you're a little more distracted. The dog, you know, needs to go out for a second or the phone rings or, you know, maybe your daughter needs help with homework or, you know, you're just, you're, you're, you're engaged, but you're not quite fully immersed. And I think more than ever as human beings for our emotional well-being, Matt, we need to be fully distracted and engaged sometimes from everything else, whether that's going for a long run or perhaps going to a temple or a church or whatever, you know, your religious persuasion may be. And, and a movie experience is a bit of a cathedral of an experience where you go in and you 
turn off your device and you engage fully and that screen just sucks you in and it's something, it's wellness. There's something about mental wellness and emotional escape that we need more than ever from distractions. And that experience is vastly different. And, you know, seeing a movie and our research bears that out. And the good news is it's not just me sitting up here on my own stage saying these things. The research is bearing it out and the attendance is bearing out. This last weekend, Venom 2 did 90, you know, $92 million, right? Well, that beat Venom 1 pre-pandemic, which was in the 80 million range, you know, two years prior. And Bond internationally is landed right between Skyfall and Spectre, which means it's doing pandemic, pre-pandemic levels. And this weekend, this may be the weekend where Bond breaks $100 million, the first Bond movie to ever do that with no asterisks around a pandemic. And so people really, obviously, like we all have kitchens and we like to go out to restaurants. We all watch the Yankees Red Sox game, maybe on the television, but if I could have gotten a ticket live, I would have gone to that experience. Um, we listen to Spotify or Pandora or, you know, iHeart on our, you know, at home or in our car. But of course we want to go see a couple of concerts a year, right? We, we just love that people crave community. That is a fundamental primal human desire to crave, you know, community and to crave live experiences. And we'll be a part of that forever. We compete in the out of home space, not in the sit on your couch space and theater owners know they need to continue to make that experience as magnificent as possible to stay competitive. Absolutely fantastic. Well, John, you've been ahead of the game on the front lines for so many years, still throwing a fastball 100 miles an hour. Uh, and I so enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for doing this. Matt, it's such a pleasure. You're a dear, dear friend, and I can't wait to see you. Be well. Thank you.